Welcome back to the Near-Death Experience Podcast. I am Chaz Hathaway, and today we're going to talk about the life review. You know, of all the most common elements of near-death experiences, I think this one might be the one that has the greatest potential to change your approach to how you live your life. At least that's been my experience. As I think about what I've learned from people's descriptions of the life review, I'm astounded and I want to be a better person and I want to be more loving and I want to do more good and I want to live for the reason that I was sent here. So let's start out with a recording, an audio recording of the experience of Rene Pissarro. This is... uh, a video found on YouTube called Rene Passaro Complete NDE Story. Uh, it shouldn't be too hard to find. And my guess is that you can probably find a number of different recordings of her sharing this experience, which I recommend doing. Um, it's really in-depth, and uh, we are just going to share the portion that deals with her life review. Okay, that she ha- she's having this experience, she's in the light, and she's describing all these different things, and in the midst of that light, um, she gives this description. And I was accompanied now by a presence, as opposed to simply being devastated by this holy storm of light. And I was called to recount for the deeds of my life. And this recounting for the deeds of one's life is not like we would think at all in terms of this life. Because what was important were the choices that I made. And what was more important than, than just the choices that I made were my motivations and my intents and really the state of my heart in doing any single action. And I realized in this, because I experienced sort of in a holographic uh, awareness that was rather instantaneous, how every action that one takes is like a stone cast in the water. And if it's loving, that stone you know, is cast in the water and the loving action goes out and touches the first person that it's intended for and then it touches another person and then it touches another person because that person interacts with other people and so on and so on and every action has a reverberating effect upon every single one of us on the face of this planet. So if I had committed a loving action It was like love upon love upon light. A a loving, a purely loving action was the most wonderful thing that I could ever achieved in my life. This had more meaning than to have been a Rockefeller or president of the United States or to have been, you know, a, a great scientist and to have invented something just incredible. If I had committed a truly pure and loving action, it had reverberated throughout the stuff of every individual on the planet, and I felt their, that action reverberating through them and through myself. 
And I felt it in a way that uh, is beyond what we can even feel ourselves on this plane of existence. So um, the significance of one's actions totally changed. What was not important was anything that I had you know, owned or, 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 or known intellectual, you know, there's a sense of intellectual pride, not that knowledge is bad, knowledge is good, but, but it, what was important was the purity and the motivation of every action. And I recall the most important of my actions is an instant I would never have recalled except for the near-death experience. And that's that many years ago, um, I had worked every summer as a, as a volunteer with retarded children. There was a day camp that went on, and I spent all summer going every day, eight hours a day, to this day camp. And there was a, a child uh, one time. Uh, it wasn't as if I were being rewarded for taking good actions, you know, like writing down actions. Well, I have done this good and that good and that good. No, what, what was important was, again, the motivation and the purity and the sincerity of my acts. And I had taken a child aside on a very hot day, and this was not a charming or a particularly lovable child. But I wanted this child to feel loved. I wanted this child to feel, really, the love of God that brought him into existence and that brought us all into existence. And I took him aside, although I wasn't religiously motivated, you know, formally. I just wanted him to feel love. I took him aside and, and uh, sang to him and gave him something to drink and just spend some time with him. And he was very agitated, but I just wanted him to feel that, that love. And that was the greatest of all actions. And that filled me with just unspeakable an incomprehensible joy. And it was not an action that anyone noticed. And it was not an action that I even recalled. And it was not an action that I had done with any thought of reward. It was simply an action motivated by love, by selfless love. And this had great meaning. In this context, one becomes aware that, you know, judgment is not necessarily imposed from the outside, but there was a judgment that was born of the sense of my own knowledge. Suddenly I had a point of reference. Suddenly I realized that it was love that had brought me into existence on this plane of existence. It was love that had guided me through every instant of my life. It was really a, a love that had accompanied me uh, uh, throughout my whole life and accompanied every individual throughout my whole life. And really there was nothing that I could have done to have been worthy of that love, that unspeakable, incomprehensible, um, immeasurable, love that I realized that I was receiving that, and that all individuals were receiving. So if to, to have committed any act of love was the greatest joy and the greatest wonder and the greatest achievement. 
and to have committed any act that was selfish and that was in any way cruel, you can imagine the impact of that act reverberating throughout the stuff of all existence and all individuals. This would be the uh, sense of great uh, uh, turmoil and pain and, uh, and uh, one, one would rather die than to have committed such an act. But the time of my life was spent. Isn't that interesting? Amazing, really. Here's another experience uh, shared by Muhammad, Muhammad Z, on uh, the NDERF website, enderf.org, which stands for Near-Death Experience Research Foundation. And his uh, description of the life review, um, he, among uh, his descriptions of his life review, he says, One example of my life review was when I was a little kid. We were traveling by car and stopped somewhere along the road. There was a river not far from the road, and I was asked to go and bring some water in a bucket from that river. And let me interject here. Remember, this is him seeing his life relived. He's experiencing this experience that he'd had in his life again. So he's, uh, he's seeing a memory, really. Okay, continuing. I went to fill up the bucket, but on my way back, I felt that the bucket was way too heavy for me. I decided to empty some of the water to make the bucket lighter. Instead of emptying the water right there, I noticed a tree that was alone by itself in a dry patch of land. I took the effort to go out of my way to that tree and emptied some of the water at that tree base, at the tree base. I even waited there a few seconds to make sure the water was soaked into the soil and was absorbed. In my life review, I received such an applaud of joy for this simple act that it was unbelievable. It was like all the spirits in the universe were filled with joy from this simple act and were telling me, we're proud of you. That simple act seemed to be one of the best things I had ever done in my life. This was strange to me because I didn't think this little act was a big deal and thought I had done much more important and bigger things. However, it was shown to me that what I had done was extremely valuable because I had done it purely from the heart, with absolutely no expectation for my own gain. Another example of my life review was when I was ten, a 10-year-old boy. I had bullied and mercilessly beaten another boy who was also around my age. He felt tortured and deeply hurt. In my life review, I saw that scene again. The boy was crying in physical and deep emotional pain. As he was walking in the street, crying and going back home, he radiated negative energy which affected everything around him on the path. People and even birds, trees and flies received this negative energy from him, which kept propagating through the universe. Even rocks on the side of the street were affected by his pain. I saw that everything is alive, and our way of grouping things in categories of alive and not alive is only from our limited physical point of view. In reality, everything is alive. 
I felt all of the pain and hurt that I had afflicted upon him inside myself. When this boy went home to his parents, I saw the impact that seeing him in that state had on his parents. I felt the feeling and pain it created in them and how it affected their behavior from that point forward. I saw that as a result of this action, his parents would always be more worried when their son was out of home or if he was a few minutes late. That's the end of Muhammad's experience. Now I'm going to read to you a few pages from the book Saved by the Light, which is the uh, near-death experience of Daniel Brinkley. Very interesting book if you ever want a good near-death experience to read. So he is uh, visiting in his near-death experience. He is in the presence of a being of light with whom he is conversing. And this is where he begins talking about his life review. He says, quote, The being of light engulfed me. And as it did, I began to experience my whole life, feeling and seeing everything that had ever happened to me. It was as though a dam had burst and every memory stored in my brain flowed out. This life review was not pleasant. From the moment it began until it ended, I was faced with the sickening reality that I had been an unpleasant person, someone who was self-centered and mean. The first thing I saw was my angry childhood. I saw myself torturing other children, stealing their bicycles or making them miserable at school. One of the most vivid scenes was one time that I picked on a child at grade school because he had a goiter that protruded from his neck. The other kids in class picked on him too, but I was the worst. At the time, I thought I was funny. But now, as I relived the incident, I found myself in his body, living with the pain that I was causing. This perspective continued through every negative incident in my childhood, a substantial number to be sure. From 5th to 12th grade, I estimate, I estimate that I had at least 6,000 fistfights. Now, as I reviewed my life in the bosom of the being, I relived each one of those altercations, but with one major difference. I was the receiver. I wasn't the receiver in the scene that I felt the punches I had thrown. Wait, I wasn't the receiver in the sense that I felt the punches I had thrown. Rather, I felt the anguish and the humiliation my opponent felt. Many of the people I fought had it coming, but others were innocent victims of my anger. Now I was forced to feel their pain. I also felt the grief I had caused my parents. I had been uncontrollable and proud of it. Although they had grounded me and yelled at me and had let me know by my actions that none of their discipline, I had let them know by my actions that none of their discipline really mattered. Many times they had pleaded with me, and many times they had met frustration. I had often bragged to my friends about how I had hurt my parents. Now in my life review, I felt their psychological pain at having such a bad child. My grade school in South Carolina had a demerit system. 
Students who received 15 demerits had their parents called in for a conference, while those who had 30 demerits on their record were suspended. In seventh grade, I had received 154 demerits by the third day of school. I was that kind of student. I was that kind of student. Now they call students like that hyperactive and do something about it. Back then, we, just, we were just called bad kids and were thought to be lost causes. When I was in the fourth grade, a red-headed boy named Kurt would wait for me every day before school and threaten to beat me up if I didn't give him my lunch money. I was afraid and gave him the money. Finally, I got tired of going all day without eating and told my father what was happening. He showed me how to make a blackjack out of a pair of my mother's nylon stockings by pouring sand in them and tying the ends. When he bothers you again, hit him with the blackjack, he told me. My father didn't mean any harm. He was just showing me how to protect myself from older kids. The problem was that after I bludgeoned Kurt and took his money, I developed a taste for fighting. From that point on, all I wanted to do was inflict pain and be tough. When I was in fifth grade, I polled all my friends to find out who they thought was the toughest kid in the neighborhood. They all agreed that it was a stocky kid named Butch. I walked up to his house and knocked on the door. Is Butch here? I asked his mother. When he came out the door, I beat him until he fell off the porch, and then I ran away. I didn't care who I fought, or how big or old they were. All I wanted to do was draw blood. Once in the sixth grade, a teacher asked me to stop disrupting class. When I refused, she grabbed my arm and began marching me toward the principal's office. As we walked out of the classroom, I pulled loose and hit her with an uppercut that knocked her to the ground. As she held her bleeding nose, I walked myself to the principal's office. As I explained to my parents, I didn't mind going to the office. I just didn't want to be pulled there by a teacher. I just didn't want to be pulled there by a teacher. We lived next door to the junior high I attended, and I could sit on the porch and watch the kids on the playground on the days that I was suspended from school. One day I was sitting there when a group of girls came to the fence and started making fun of me. I wasn't going to take that. I went into the house, got my brother's shotgun, and loaded it with rock salt. Then I came back out and shot the girls in the back as they fled, screaming. By the time I was 17, I was known as one of the best fighters in my high school. I fought almost daily to maintain my reputation. I couldn't find, when I couldn't find kids from my own school to beat up, I relied on the bad kids from other schools for competition. At least once a week, we had staged fights in a parking lot near school. Students would come from as far as 30 miles away to participate in these fights. On the days that I fought, many of the kids wouldn't get out of their cars because after I beat up my opponent, I would take on a few spectators just for fun. These were the days of segregated high schools, and we would, have, we would have great wars between blacks and whites. The black champion was a giant named Lundy. No one wanted to fight him after he beat the white champion in, in a savage two-minute battle. 
Even I tried to avoid him, knowing there was no way that I could win. One day we ran into each other at a hamburger stand. I tried to leave quickly, but he stepped in my way. Meet me tomorrow morning at the parking lot, he said. I'll be there, I promised. Then as he turned to walk away, I hit him with such force on the right side of the face that he couldn't open his eyes for at least ten minutes. As he lay there struggling on the ground, I walked around him and kicked him in the chest a couple of times as hard as I could. I won't be able to make it tomorrow, I said, so I thought I'd take care of it today. I knew I couldn't beat him in a fair fight, so I jumped him when his back was turned. That was the world I lived in through high school. Twenty years later, at my high school reunion, a classmate cornered my date to tell her what kind of student I had been. Let me tell you what he was famous for, he said. He would beat you, steal your girlfriend, or do both. In retrospect, I couldn't have agreed with him more. By the time I was finished with high school, that is exactly who I was. And by the time I had reached that point in my review, I was ashamed of myself. Now I knew the pain I had caused everyone in my life. As my body lay dead on that stretcher, I was reliving every moment of my life, including my emotions, attitudes, and motivations. The depth of emotion I experienced during this life review was astonishing. Not only could I feel the way both I and the other person had felt when an incident took place, I could also feel the feelings of the next person they reacted to. I was in a chain reaction of emotion, one that showed how deeply we affect one another. Luckily, not all of it was bad. One time, for instance, my great-uncle and I were driving down the road when we saw a man beating a goat that somehow had gotten its head stuck in the fence. The man had a branch and was hitting the goat across the back as hard as he could while the goat bleated in fear and agony. I stopped the car and jumped across the ditch. Before the man could turn around, I was pounding him as hard as I could in the back of the head. I only stopped when my great-uncle pulled me off. I freed the goat, and we left the, in a cloud of burnt rubber. Now, as I relived that incident, I felt satisfaction at the humiliation that f that farmer had felt and joy in the relief the goat had felt. I knew that in the animal's own way, he had said thank you. But I wasn't always kind to animals. I saw myself whipping a dog with a belt. I had caught this dog chewing on our living room carpet and lost my temper. I had pulled my belt off and let him have it without trying a lesser form of discipline. Reliving this incident, I felt the dog's love for me and could tell that he didn't mean to do what he was doing. I felt his sorrow and pain. Later, I thought about these experiences. Later, as I thought about these experiences, I realized that people who beat animals or are cruel to them are going to know how those animals felt when they have a life review. I also discovered that it is not so much what you do that counts, but why you do it. For example, having a fist fight with someone for no reason 
hurt me far more in the life review than having one with someone who had picked a fight with me. To relive hurting someone just for fun is the greatest pain of all. To relive hurting someone for a cause you believe in is not as painful. This became obvious to me when my review took me back through my years in military and intelligence work. In the span of what must have been a few seconds, I went through basic training where I had where I learned to channel my anger into my new role as a combat soldier. On that special training, I went watching and feeling my character being molded for the purpose of killing of killing. This was an era of the Vietnam War, and I found myself back in the muggy jungles of Southeast Asia for what I liked to do most, fight. No, doing what I like to do most, fight. I spent very little time in Vietnam. I was attached to an intelligence unit that operated mainly in Laos and Cambodia. I did a bit of observation work, which amounted to little more than watching enemy troop movements through binoculars. My main job was to plan and execute the removal of enemy politicians and military personnel. In short, I was an assassin. I didn't operate alone. Two other, of, or two other Marines worked with me as we scoured the jungles looking for spe- specific targets. Their, jo- their jobs was to spot the target with a high-powered telescope and verify that the desired person had been eliminated. My job was to pull the trigger. Once, for example... We were sent to terminate a North Vietnamese colonel who was with his troops in the jungles of Cambodia. Aerial photographs showed us where this colonel was holed up. It was our job to tramp through the jungle and find him. Although this kind of attack was especially time-consuming, it was considered crucial, for it broke the morale of the enemy troops to have their leader killed in their midst. We found the colonel right where the maps said we would. We sat quietly about 700 yards from the camp, waiting for the perfect moment to drop him. That moment came early the next morning, when the troops lined up for their daily review. I got into position, bringing the crosshairs of my highly powered sniper rifle on the head of the colonel, who was standing before the unsuspecting soldiers. Is that him? I asked the spotter, whose job it was to identify the targets with the photographs intelligence had given us. That's him, he said. The man standing right before the troop. Troops is him. I squeezed off the round and felt the rifle kick. A moment later, I saw his head explode and his body crumple before the shocked troops. That was when I saw or that was what I saw when the incident happened. During my life review, I experienced this incident from the perspective of the North Vietnamese colonel. I didn't feel the pain that he must have felt. Instead, I felt his confusion at having his head blown off and sadness as he left his body and realized he would never go home again. Then I felt the rest of the chain reaction, the sad feelings of his family when he reali- when they realized 
they would be without their provider. I relived all of my kills in just this fashion. I saw myself make the kill, and then I felt its horrible results. While in Southeast Asia, I had seen women and children murdered, entire villages destroyed for no reason or for the wrong reasons. I had not been involved in these killings, but now I had to experience them again from the point of view not of the executor, but the executed. On one occasion, for example, I was sent to a country bordering Vietnam to assassinate a government official who did not share the American point of view. I went in with the team. Our goal was to eliminate this man at a small rural hotel where he was staying. This would make the unspoken statement that no one was Let's see. This was to make the unspoken statement that no one was out of reach of the United States government. We sat in the jungle for four days, waiting for a clear shot at this official. But he was always surrounded by an entourage of bodyguards and secretaries. Finally, we gave up and decided on another tact. Late at night, while everyone, everyone was asleep, we would simply plant explosives and blow up the hotel. That is exactly what we did. We surrounded the hotel with plastic explosives and leveled it at sunrise, killing the official along with about 50 people who were staying there. At the time, I laughed about it and told my control officer that all all the people deserved to die because they were guilty by association. I saw this incident again during my near-death experience, but this time I was hit by a rush of emotions and information. I felt the stark horror that all of those people felt as they realized their lives were being snuffed out. I experienced the pain their families felt that when they discovered that they had lost loved ones in such a tragic way. In many cases, I felt the loss their absence would make to future generations. All in all, I contributed to the deaths of dozens of people in Southeast Asia, and reliving them was hard to take. The one saving grace was that at the time, I thought that what I was doing was right. I was killing in the name of patriotism, which took the edge off the horrors I had committed. When I returned to the United States after my military duty, I continued to work for the government performing clandestine operations. This largely involved the transport of weapons to people and countries friendly to the United States. Sometimes I was even called upon to train these people in the fine art of sniping or demolition. Now, in my life review, I was forced to see the death and destruction that had taken place in the world as a result of my actions. We are all a link in the great chain of humanity, of humanity, said the being. What you do has an effect on the other links in that chain. Many of examples of this came to mind, but one in particular stands out. I saw myself unloading weapons in the Central American country, in a Central American country. They were to be used to fight a war that was supported by our 
country against the Soviet Union. My task simply was to transfer these weapons from an airplane to our military interests in the area. When this transfer was completed, I got back on the airplane and left. But leaving wasn't so easy in my life review. I stayed with the weapons and watched as they were distributed at a military staging area. Then I went with the guns and they were used uh, as they were used in the job of killing, some of them murdering innocent people and some the not so innocent. All in all, it was horrible to witness the results of my role in this war. This weapons transfer in Central America was the last job I was involved in before being struck by lightning. I remember watching children cry because they had been told that their fathers were dead, and I knew that these deaths were caused by the guns I had delivered. Then that was it. The review was over. When I finished the review, I arrived at a point of reflection in which I was able to look back on what I had just witnessed and come to a conclusion. I was ashamed. I realized I had led a very selfish life, rarely reaching out to help anyone. End quote. Wow. Now, I know that was an extensive uh, reading there, but I, I think it's just too valuable to... Uh, pass up. This is something that is very common in near-death experiences, is this life review. Those who led good lives experience the good and the, those good positive ripples that they, that they sent out into the world. And those who lived selfish lives felt that. Or, let me rephrase that. Everybody experienced everything. Everybody experienced the selfish as well as the uh, as the good. And as we read in the previous uh, reading, the simplest acts of love are applauded in heaven to a remarkable degree. I mean, pouring your excess water on a tree that looks a little dry, like it could use a drink, um, was applauded as one of the greatest things that this man had ever done. Now, I don't know how old he was when he had the experience. Maybe he was only a teenager or something. But the point is, in a life, in any life, there are multiple experiences. And the ones where there is true, genuine love behind them, just selfless love, even if it's not given in a, a you know, while you are bathed in the emotion, but it is done in sincerity and love, that is applauded in heaven. And even the most seemingly most justified cruelty is still a pain to the, uh, the sufferer and therefore in the life review by the instigator. So that is the end of today's episode. Think about that. And as we read further experiences, I want you to remember this this uh, life review in all its detail, how people remembered every thought, people remembered every incident. They, they experienced the uh, ripple effect of everything that they had ever done, good or bad. This is going to come into play 
um, over and over again. And I think it's very important for a number of reasons. But the main reason, the most important reason, is because it illustrates the fact that everything you do in life, everything has a consequence, has a ripple. What kind of ripple do you want to leave? So with that, thank you so much for listening.